This is Music Notes and More with your host, Jason Ginty. All right, here we go. Nirvana, get in utero. Black Sabbath, get paranoid. ZZ Top, want to go to outer space. John Lennon would have been 79. Prince gets booed off the stage. Aerosmith, hate Philadelphia. Sting sucks. The Doors play a high school. And you know what car company put turntables in their cars? The answer to that and so much more as we take a look back in music history for the week of October the 7th. Want to thank you for listening to the podcast each week. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever it is you listen to the thing and leave your comments if you have any. And of course, tell everyone you know to listen. I do appreciate it. It was this week back in 1994 that Pink Floyd played the first of a 15-night run at Earl's Court, London. Now, less than a minute after the band had started playing Shine On You Crazy Diamond, a scaffolding stand holding 1,200 fans collapses, throwing hundreds of people 20 feet to the ground. It took over an hour to free everyone from the twisted mess. 96 people were injured with 36 of them needing hospital treatment. Six were detained overnight with back, neck, and rib injuries. So what does Pink Floyd do to apologize for the situation? Ah, yes, this is the rub. Pink Floyd sent a free t-shirt and a note of apology to all the fans who had been seated in the stand that collapsed. Of course, the show was canceled and rescheduled. They sent everybody a t-shirt. This week, back in 1993, Nirvana entered the U.S. album charts at number one with In Utero, which was their third and final studio album. It was the follow-up to Nevermind. Now, Kurt Cobain had originally wanted to name the album I Hate Myself and I Want to Die. At the time, the singer used the phrase as a response whenever someone asked him how he was doing. Cobain intended the album title as a joke. Of course, he stated that he was just tired of taking the band so seriously, and he was tired of everyone else taking the band so seriously. He wanted to lighten up just a bit. They were a bunch of fun guys in the band. They were having fun. Everyone else took Nirvana so damn serious all the time. Bassist Chris Novoselic convinced Cobain to change the title due to fear that it could potentially result in a lawsuit. The band then considered using Verse, Chorus, Verse, a title taken from its song, Verse, Chorus, Verse, and an earlier working title of Sappy, before eventually settling on In Utero. The final title was taken from a poem written by Courtney Love. In 1987, the three members of ZZ Top made advance bookings for seats on the very first passenger flight to the moon. They were in the middle of promotion for their new album at the time called Afterburner. It featured uh, Rough Boy, Sleeping Bag, good album. Now the boys, they're kind of still waiting for confirmation of the trip, but they said if they ever do get to go to the moon on a passenger flight, they would certainly bring their instruments and play in the lounge on the spaceship during the journey. Now would the guys in ZZ Top have to shave their beards? To go into outer space, you never see astronauts with facial hair usually. So I looked it up. Is there rules about facial hair for astronauts? In fact, there isn't any rules about having facial hair. Most guys don't because they're almost all ex-military, so they're clean-cut dudes. The guys in ZZ Top, if they do ever go to space, will not have to shave their beards. 
This week back in 1970, Black Sabbath were at number one on the chart with their second album called Paranoid. Chances are you've heard it before. It's awesome. Now, the album, which contains some of the band's best-known songs, including Iron Man, War Pigs, Paranoid, is now regarded as one of the classic heavy metal albums and is often cited as an influential album in the development, of course, of heavy metal music. There's a lot that goes into this album. The album's title track was written as an afterthought. Yeah, Paranoid was just a toss-away song. Drummer Bill Ward says that they didn't have enough songs for the album, so Tony Iommi just started playing the guitar lick, and that was it. It took like 20 to 25 minutes from top to bottom to figure out the song. That's incredible, because that song is crazy awesome. War Pigs was originally intended to be called Walpurgis. It was then changed to War Pigs uh, later on. Geezer Butler says he wanted to write a song called Walpurgis, the satanic version of Christmas. I guess that's what that word means. He wanted to write it about the fact that Satan isn't a spiritual thing. It's warmongers. That's who the real Satanists are, all these people who are running the banks in the world and trying to get the working class to fight the wars for them. So Geezer and the band sent it off to the record company, and they said, uh, no. We're not going to call it that. It's way too satanic. So Geezer Butler changed it to War Pigs. In his autobiography, I Am Ozzy, which is awesome, by the way, vocalist Ozzy Osbourne says, look, it was originally going to, going to be called Walpurgis, which was like a term for black magic wedding or something. Then we changed it to War Pigs, and Geezer came up with these really heavy-duty lyrics about death and destruction. No wonder we never got any chicks at our gigs. Geezer just wasn't interested in your average I love you pop song. Geezer also liked to put a lot of topical stuff in the songs, like Vietnam references. He had his ear to the ground, Geezer did, and he knew a lot about pop culture at the time, and that's what went into a lot of Black Sabbath songs. Fairies Wear Boots off the album was written by Osborne about a nasty encounter with a group of skinheads. Think of the song title. Now, according to Rolling Stone magazine, Sabbath ruled for bummed out kids in the 70s, man. And nearly every heavy metal and extreme rock band of the last 30 years and still going, including Metallica, Nirvana, the grunge scene, Slipknot, they all owe a debt of worship to Tony Iommi's crushing guitar riffs, Warden Butler's rhythm section, and Osborne's agonized bray on tracks such as Paranoid, Iron Man, and War Pigs. Completely shifting musical gears, it was this week back in 1995 that Alanis Morissette went to number one on the U.S. album charts with her album Jagged Little Pill. She was just 21 at the time, you know the record, Six singles, including You Ought to Know, Ironic, You Learn, Hand in My Pocket, Head Over Feet. It went on to become the biggest selling album ever by a female artist with sales of over 33 million copies. Alanis Morissette met producer Glenn Ballard when she was just 19 and they had an instant connection and began co-writing and experimenting with sounds. Now, Jagged Little Pill was nominated for nine Grammy Awards. They, she won five, including Album of the Year, making Morissette the youngest artist in history to win that honor, a record she held until 2010 when Taylor Swift won the prize for her album Fearless. 
The album's first single, called You Oughta Know, contained guitar, which was played by Dave Navarro. You know him from Jane's Addiction and, of course, his stint in the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Playing bass on that song for Alanis Morissette was Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah, now you've got instant cool, right? Navarro and Flea kind of messed around in the studio for a while, and they pulled together uh, a song, the music for it, a lot like uh, a remix. They basically jammed until they found something they were uh, both happy with. They played it for Alanis, and she's like, that's cool with me. Taylor Hawkins, he is now the drummer for the Foo Fighters. You can see him smashing the drums in the video for You Ought to Know. That was her touring drummer as well. She put together a hell of a band. Now, the album was expected to only sell just enough copies for Morissette to make her next album. Ah, but this is the power of radio. You see, the uh, situation changed very quickly when K-Rock FM in Los Angeles, the modern rock station out there, began playing You Ought to Know. Now remember, this is 95, 96, right? So you've got this invasion of all this heavy grunge music, and the radio station just had this kind of heavy, dark feel to them all the time. Because all the music was heavy and dark, and that grunge stuff, kind of miserable when you start putting Alice in Chains and Soundgarden together, right? So K-Rock was smart. They're like, hey, this song rocks. The lyrics are brutal. What? Let's give it a, a rip. So they did. It took off like crazy. It instantly garnered attention for the scathing explicit lyrics. Go down on you in a theater. Ring a bell. Right. And a subsequent video went into heavy rotation on MTV. Well, Everyone copies everyone, so all the alternative stations around the country started playing, you ought to know. Uh, in fact, I was on a radio station in Buffalo, New York called The Edge at the time, and they're like, here's this girl with uh, this song called You Ought to Know, and I'm like, we're going to play a girl on the radio? Because back then it was all about dudes. We played it, and we're like, whoa, this girl's pissed off. This is awesome. And of course, it became a monster. The album has now inspired a new Broadway play that opens this November 2019 up in New York City. It was this week back in 2008 that Paul McCartney, who, by the way, for most of his life has been a vegetarian, was said to be furious when he heard that a Liverpool branch of a McDonald's restaurant displayed his picture. He accused that McDonald's of using his picture to attract customers. Sir Paul was quoted as, as saying... What sort of morons do McDonald's think Beatles fans are? Apparently, he was pissed. McDonald's sells a lot of hamburgers. He doesn't eat them. Back in 1981, Prince was not quite yet a rock star that he would become. This was before 1999 and Purple Rain, Little Red Corvette, Let's Go Crazy. It was before all that, okay? He's just getting started with uh, one kind of minor hit called I Want to Be Your Lover. Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones, he was a fan of Prince's early stuff. The Stones were going on tour, so Jagger invited young Prince to open a pair of Rolling Stones shows in Los Angeles back in 81. Let's just say it did not go well. The Stones' 1981 tour was a massive undertaking that saw the band break attendance records like crazy. The L.A. Coliseum is where they played. That place is huge. It was loaded with an estimated 94,000 Rolling Stones fans that day. Now, the crowd wasn't too thrilled with the music that Prince started to play. Think about this, okay? 
On the first night, there's Prince with his R&B sound, right? Other openers were George Thorogood and the Jay Giles Band. So before Prince even played a note, it was pretty darn clear that the androgynous-looking Prince might not have been the best fit for this macho, blues, rock, tough guy audience that were there to see the Stones, ultimately. Prince comes out on stage to the microphone in what he normally wore, which was a see-through jacket, thigh-high boots, and a black bikini. That's what he was wearing. After just a couple of songs, the crowd got pissed and began screaming racist and homophobic slurs at Prince and his band. And when that didn't work, bottles, cans, and anything else the crowd could find were thrown at Prince and the band. Prince's bassist said the next thing he noticed was food started flying through the air like a dark thundercloud. He said, imagine 94,000 people throwing food at each other and at us on stage. It was utter chaos. It was the craziest thing I had ever seen in my life. The bassist goes on to say that he got hit in the shoulder with a bag of fried chicken. (laughs) You're playing in a concert and someone whips a bag of fried chicken at you. Then my guitar got knocked out of tune by a large grapefruit that hit the tuning keys. What were they allowing in this concert, by the way? Anyway, Prince stopped the set partway through their fourth song amidst a stadium's worth of booing. Stones fans had successfully turned the mighty Prince away. So a frustrated Prince was reportedly crying backstage afterwards, and he was pissed. He said, look, I'm going to skip the second show in a couple of days. We will not be opening for you guys. So he flew home to Minnesota without the band. Then, of course, he gets a bunch of phone calls from his manager. And actually, Mick Jagger calls Prince and says, dude, you got to get up there. you got to go again. you got to keep trying. you got talent. Get up there. Do it. So Prince finally flies back out west to L.A., leads his band through another opening slot. And basically the same damn thing happens. He comes out dressed the same. He plays basically the same set. Everyone's booing him, yelling terrible things at him. But the band kept on playing their five-song set. Luckily, it was only five songs. That night, Prince bowed to never open for another band again. He didn't. It was this week back in 1940 that John Lennon was born. He would have been 79 years of age this week. In 1957, he formed his first band, The Quarrymen, which of course evolved into The Beatles in 1960. Now, he was initially the group's de facto leader, a role he gradually rescinded to Paul McCartney. Now, Lennon was renowned for his rebellious nature, his acerbic wit, and his, in his music, his writings, drawings on film, and in interviews. He was controversial through his political and peace activism. So after moving to New York in 71, his criticism of the Vietnam War resulted in a three-year attempt by the Nixon administration to deport him. In 1975, Lenin disengaged from the music business altogether to raise his son, Sean. And in 1980, he returned with Yoko Ono with a collaboration album called Double Fantasy. 
He was shot and killed in the archway of his Manhattan apartment building three weeks after the album's release by Mark Chapman on the 8th of December, 1980. Now, by 2018, John Lennon's solo equivalent album sales has exceeded 72 million units worldwide. That's just the solo stuff. That does not include the Beatles. Lennon was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice as a member of the Beatles in 1988 and as a solo artist in 1994. When the Beatles recorded their famous song, Twist and Shout, think about that for a second. Think about uh, how crazy and rough the vocals are. Well, that was the final track that they recorded during their mammoth one-day session that produced the band's 1963 debut album, Please Please Me. Now, Lennon's voice was already compromised by a cold and singing for many, many hours at, on end. He came close to just giving out. Lennon said, look, I couldn't sing the damn thing. I was just screaming through the song. Lennon simply just shredded his vocal cords in the interests of rock and roll, which, of course, gives Twist and Shout such a great, rough sound. Go back and listen to those vocals. You're going to be like, oh yeah, you can hear it. He's struggling through that whole song, but that's what really makes that song incredible. Beatles producer George Martin tells how Lennon had an inborn dislike of his own voice, which Martin says he could never understand. He was always saying to me, do something with my voice. Put something on it. Make it sound different. So Martin did. He often used double tracking and other studio tricks. Lennon continues to be mourned throughout the world to this day and has been the subject of numerous memorials and tributes. In 2002, the airport in Lennon's hometown was renamed the Liverpool John Lennon Airport. On what would have been Lennon's 70th birthday in 2010, Cynthia and Julian Lennon unveiled the John Lennon Peace Monument in Liverpool. Now, the sculpture, entitled Peace and Harmony, exhibits peace symbols and carries the inscription, Peace on Earth for the Conservation of Life, in honor of John Lennon, 1940-1980. In December 2013, the International Astronomical Union named one of the craters on Mercury after John Lennon. This week back in 1978, Aerosmith found out just how rough a town Philadelphia, Pennsylvania can be when one of the fans in the crowd threw an M80 on stage. And yes, it was lit. Here's what goes down. Guitarist Brad Whitford says that they were going back up on the stage to do the encore, right? And uh, he says he was going up the stairs right behind Steven Tyler and Joe Perry. He says he felt a concussion of the cherry bomb going off. Steven Tyler immediately covered his face and there was blood shooting up out of Joe's arm, literally. So pretty quickly, we got ourselves to the emergency room. The incident reportedly burned Steven Tyler's cornea in his eye and it ruptured an artery in Perry's hand and forced the band off the road for quite a while understandably angry, the guys in Aerosmith declined offers to return to the city of brotherly love for quite a while. Now, eventually, uh, of course, Aerosmith did return to the scene of the crime. A little more than a year later, Steven Tyler was once again on stage in Philadelphia, and he was once again injured on stage in Philadelphia. Five songs into a sold-out show, somebody threw a beer bottle from the balcony. It hit 
the stage dead center right in front of the monitor and exploded, sending shards of glass into Steven Tyler's face. Some of the glass went right through his mouth. That's it. Backstage, Steven Tyler is holding a towel to his bloody face. And he wants to go back out and continues the show. Well, the band has a vote, and the vote was 4-1 to one against. And two minutes later, Aerosmith were in limos and out the door. I'm sure they've played Philadelphia again since then, and I'm sure they get a little nervous each time. This week back in 2007, Sting topped the list of worst lyricists ever. Yeah, apparently someone made this list. Anyway, he was number one on the list of worst lyricists ever for such alleged sins as name-dropping Russian novelist Vladimir Nobokov. In the police song, Don't Stand So Close to Me, he also quoted a Volvo bumper sticker, If You Love Someone, Set Them Free. And he stole a lot of, uh, borrowed a lot of works from Chaucer, St. Augustine, and Shakespeare. Now, the survey in Blender Magazine of Worst Lyricist Ever placed Rush drummer Neil Peart at number two, Creed frontman Scott Stapp at number three, and Oasis guitarist Noel Gallagher at number four, saying that Gallagher seemed incapable of following a metaphor through a single line, let alone a whole verse. Hey, look. Words can be hard. Back in 1967 this week, The Doors appeared at Danbury High School, Danbury, Connecticut. Now, before the group came on stage, an announcer told the audience, do not leave your seats during the performance or you would be escorted out of the venue. There was also a beauty pageant just prior to The Doors coming on stage. Here's what happens. You see, The Doors had been booked the previous spring of 67 to open up fall weekend at Western Connecticut State University in Danbury, Connecticut, okay? Then their debut album blows up huge and Light My Fire becomes a major hit. Well, by October, everyone knew who The Doors were. The band's sudden success had turned the Danbury booking into a major coup for the Western Connecticut organizers. But a huge problem arose. The college auditorium, where the doors were supposed to perform, was undergoing weeks of renovations and was no longer available for use. In a last-minute switch, the concert was moved to nearby Danbury High School, where the auditorium was just large enough to accommodate the crowd, which was about 2,000 people. This was the doors, and they were on a hot streak. They were playing all over the country. They are playing a high school auditorium, and they had to follow a beauty pageant. The pageant finishes up. They put the crown on the girl. Here come the doors. This week back in 1997, John Denver was killed when the handmade experimental airplane he was flying ran out of gas and crashed off the coast of Monterey Bay, California. He was 53 years old at the time. Now, he had scored like 15 songs on the Top 40 chart, including Rocky Mountain High, Take Me Home, Country Roads. Yeah, he was an avid pilot and was flying an experimental airplane when it ran out of gas, and John Denver was dead at 53. Back in 1955, the Chrysler Corporation launched high-fidelity record players for their 1956 lineup of cars. Now, the unit 
<laughs> the turntable, yes, the turntable in a car measured about four inches high and about a foot wide and was mounted under the dashboard. Can you imagine? The seven-inch discs spun at 16 and two-thirds RPMs and required almost three times the number of grooves per inch as a LP. The players were discontinued in 1961. I don't know how potholes were in 1955, but I imagine you didn't get a full listen to a full song driving around very often. But man, how cool would it be to find one of these units today and what they must be worth? It was this week back in 1978 that while he was living at the Chelsea Hotel in New York City, Sex Pistols bassist Sid Vicious called the police to say that someone had stabbed his girlfriend Nancy Spungin. Sid was arrested and charged with her murder and placed in the detox unit of a New York prison. Sid Vicious died of a heroin overdose before the case went to trial. Music Notes and More is a podcast that's written, produced, and hacked together by me, Jason Ginty. We release new episodes every single Friday, and I appreciate you listening. Be sure to leave your comments, questions, concerns, wherever it is you listen to this podcast. Please subscribe, that way you're the first one to get to hear it. And be sure to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.